This is ASHA Voices. I'm JD Gray with a quick announcement. This week, ASHA Voices was recognized at the Excel Awards ceremony. These industry awards go to professional associations like ASHA and are handed out by the Association Media and Publishing Network. This show, ASHA Voices, received Excel Awards in four categories that include podcast series, single episode, and we received awards for content related to the pandemic and to diversity and inclusion initiatives. We're proud of the episodes that led to this recognition and the members who shared their stories as a part of those conversations. And so we're giving those episodes a bit more life. Here are clips from our award-winning episodes on ASHA Voices. First, we're going to hear from an episode published in February 2020. Ijomo Oluo is the author of the best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race, and she delivered the ASHA Office of Multicultural Affairs 50th Anniversary Address at the 2019 ASHA Convention. Following that address, she joined me in conversation, along with former ASHA president Elise Davis McFarland. In her book, Ijoma describes microaggressions as, quote, small daily insults and indignities perpetrated against marginalized or oppressed people because of their affiliation with that marginalized or oppressed group, end quote. Ijoma links microaggressions to health issues like raised blood pressure, and I asked her to tell us more about the subject. It's really important to recognize that things are called microaggression, but it doesn't mean the impact of them is small. They're called microaggressions because they're kind of the everyday ways in which people of color are made to feel unwelcome and unsafe throughout the world. And these are things that oftentimes people who are perpetuating them against people of color don't realize that they're doing it. But the cumulative effect is incredibly strong. So this is often in comments that people will make. Um, and oftentimes when you're talking about speech, it's around language, word choice, accent. It may seem like a compliment. And it's just everyday little things that might be jokes, um, snide comments, comments about someone's hair, their appearance, that let them know you, you don't actually you belong here. Every time that happens, your body responds to threat. Your body responds to a sense of danger. Your heart rate elevates a little bit. You start breathing a little faster. You get on guard. That is a natural physical response to the thought that you might be facing someone who's hostile to you. When that happens occasionally, no big deal. But when it happens every day, multiple times a day, and you can't predict when, what you do is then you wander around with an elevated response. Your fight or flight response is constantly active and that wears on you. And it has real long-term health impacts for people of color, whether that's psychological impacts and physical impacts as well. And it, it hurts people of color. An analogy I'd like to use is if you're walking throughout your day and someone at a couple times a day is going to walk up and punch you in the arm and you don't know when or where, it's going to hurt It'll hurt the first time, the second time. By the 50th time, you've got stress fractures and you can't heal and you don't know where it's happening and you run around flinching all of the time, afraid that someone's going to punch you. And then one day someone walks by and they're not even trying to punch you. They're just gesticulating wildly and they hit you in the spot that just broke and you scream and they turn to you and they say, I didn't mean to, why are you so sensitive? But you walked by every day seeing that person get punched and you didn't say anything and you didn't think I should be more careful. You are responsible 
for how you've added to that person's pain. And we need to be looking at the way in which we perpetrate microaggressions against people of color in a similar way. We need to know that we are not just acting alone. We are adding to cumulative, continuous harm that's being done to people of color. I'm sitting here thinking about uh, the microaggressions that I always expect to experience at, when I come to a convention. Elise Davis-McFarland. And that is the, the, I'm on the elevator, the elevator door opens, and the white person standing there hesitates to get on. And if it's me, that's one thing. But if it's a, an African-American man or a man of color, the hesitation is longer. And uh, I've even seen, you know, folk back away and not get on the, uh, not get on the elevator. Mm-hmm. I actually had that happen to me in Portland. Uh, I was on with a family, and it was so funny. It was a white family, and I had just driven four hours, and I was getting ready to go to my hotel, and this little girl goes, oh, no. Oh, no, I don't want to be on the elevator with her. Now, this little girl could have been saying it for any reason, right? But her parents are adults who live in the world and recognize that their white daughter is saying this, to the one black person on the elevator. And instead of saying, honey, that's rude or sorry, they go, you know what? We don't get to choose who we ride the elevator with. And then they got off on the next floor. And I got off and my room was right next to the elevator. And so I got off and went in my room. 30 seconds later, I hear them get back up on the floor. They got back on the elevator and got on the floor and got off there. It's a constant reminder that your very existence is unwelcome in many spaces. These conversations about race and microaggressions, they create opportunities for people to recognize them, people on the giving end of the microaggressions. These conversations can maybe allow them time for reflection and to say, okay, what am I saying? How is that affecting people? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to do is When you are confronted with the way in which you're acting that's harming people, or even when you have these thoughts that pop up in your head that maybe you don't act upon, instead of going, oh, I didn't do that, you know, you're being too sensitive, or, oh, I'm the worst, never do that again, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry, pause and think, why did I do that? Why did I think that? Where did that come from? Where did I learn this? So, you know, the family that I interacted with on the elevator could have paused and thought, Why does our daughter think about this? Do we have any people of color in our life? Why is she so uncomfortable? Start looking deeper and start asking, you know, what does this say about how I'm interacting with people? What does this say about what I've learned and what I may be teaching and what messages I may be putting out there? Take the opportunity to dig deeper because it's never just the action, right? If you pause to get on an elevator with people of color, And even if you get over that initial fear, if you don't investigate it, it means that a mayor talking about stop and frisk, you're susceptible to that, right? Someone talking about crowd control, someone talking about, you know, rowdy students and they're ending up kicking out students of color, arresting students of color, you're susceptible to all of that messaging if you don't pause and think why am I nervous around people of color? What messaging has sunk into me? What do I need to eradicate out of myself? If you just shove it away and act like it doesn't mean anything more, you will continue to show that nervousness and that fear in many other much more damaging ways throughout your life if you don't take the great opportunity to examine it. Author Ijoma Aluo. A special thank you to Elise Davis McFarland for joining me in this conversation.
Our next clip comes from very early on in the pandemic. We spoke with SLP Tammy Altschuler twice last year. Tammy works at the NYU Langone Medical Center. She's a clinical specialist in patient provider communication, and she was one of the first people I spoke with while searching for answers about how SLPs were being affected by the pandemic. In March of last year, I asked Tammy about what it was like being inside the hospital at that critical time. It's scary. It's scary because we're seeing our ICUs fill up already. We have a lot of patients who are already intubated. I had a situation this morning where I saw a patient yesterday and then found out today that he was pending test results for COVID. And then I had to wonder, am I asymptomatic? And is it possible that I transmitted the virus to him? Or did he give it to me somehow? And you go through this back and forth, like, did I give it to him? Did he give it to me? And and you're just kind of anxious. And, you know, it turned out that the result was negative, And that's great. But I feel like we're going through this every day, all of our patients. And we're very fearful that we could transmit the virus to our patients. I'd seen Tammy tweet about the communication barrier that surgical masks can create. Because I thought we might be seeing more masks in healthcare environments, I asked Tammy to tell me about how they can work as a communication barrier. When someone wears a mask, number one, you're hiding your facial expressions. So a big part of being in a healthcare setting is showing empathy. And when we have these masks on, we're not able to show that we can empathize with the patient or we can identify with something that they're experiencing. So that's number one, it's that nonverbal communication, but also it can limit our speech intelligibility. A lot of the nurses have been telling me since they've been wearing the masks a lot more frequently than they normally do that their patients, especially those who are deaf or hard of hearing, are having some difficulties with understanding what they're saying. And especially in New York, where we have all different languages and accents that uh, people speak, That's another factor that has a role in this. And I've been working with the nurses, especially in the past week, on some strategies that they can use to help them communicate better with the masks on with their patients. And what are some of those strategies? Number one is if they do have hearing aids or glasses, make sure that the patient's actually using them. Very often they're in the room somewhere in a drawer or on the windowsill and not actually on the patient. Um, or making sure you have the patient's visual attention before you speak with them so they can maybe pick up on other um, facial cues, visual cues that you use. We all use gestures that can help um, complement our speech and just speaking a little more slowly and maybe some more simple language, shorter phrases, those kind of techniques. I saw on your Twitter feed a couple experiences you had that I was hoping you could kind of elaborate, tell me a little bit more about. One, you said that you have a patient who is tricked to vent and uses AAC and his wife was pregnant. Could you tell me a little bit about this patient and that experience? He's been in our hospital for a few weeks now and he was intubated. So I started working with him on AAC while he was intubated. And just this week, he had a trach placed. And he's still on the ventilator, not quite ready to try speaking valve. And so he communicates using an alphabet board with partner-assisted scanning. So I highlight a row 
with letters on the alphabet board and he'll indicate when he gets to the letter that he needs to spell out a word and it's a bit of a lengthy process but it's been really effective so far and his wife is pregnant and due very soon and so we now have a visitor policy at our hospital that we don't allow for any visitors for our adult patients because of the concern with COVID and protecting our patients and also protecting our healthcare providers. And it's really isolating. I think number one, it's really isolating when someone's unable to speak and then be terrified of their own diagnosis and medical situation and then the fear of COVID that we all have. And now he's alone because his wife or other family members cannot visit. I've been able to visit him and, and work with him on using AAC and getting some messages out using FaceTime. So yesterday and today we were able to FaceTime with his wife and they were able to have their own conversation. And today he picked out his baby's name using AAC. It felt a little weird for me to be part of that conversation, but I was glad to help facilitate that. And he won. He got to pick the name. Another tweet, and I'm hoping you could tell it to me almost like a story, but you talk about someone who was near the end of their life and their daughter was quarantined. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? Do you, know, do you know what I'm talking about? Would you mind telling me that story? I was working last weekend, last Saturday, and I have this woman who's elderly and she's end of life and has nothing to do with COVID at all. Because that's the thing is people still have cancer. People still have strokes and people still have other conditions that they're battling with. And she she probably has a few weeks and her daughter cannot visit. Why can't her daughter visit? She lives in an area in New York that has been basically locked down. And so you cannot leave your home at all if you live in, it's in New Rochelle, New York. And so she cannot come and visit her mother in the hospital. I think she's someone who has tested positive recently, so she's self-quarantined. I always like to spend just like an extra minute or two with a patient to see what they might need before I leave the room. And I could just kind of sense that this patient was feeling a little lonely and had a little extra time in my day anyway. So I just kind of ended up pulling a chair and sitting at her bedside and I love cats, and so does she, and I love jazz, and so does she. And so we just started, like, listening to some jazz music, and I showed her, like, a hundred pictures of my cat. (laughs) And it was just great to have that moment with her, and knowing that she's not getting too many of those moments probably with anyone. Near the end of our conversation, I asked Tammy if there's anything else she wanted to share about her experience, about what she's been going through as an SLP, things that she's seen, or what other people might expect. She talked about how she viewed her role as an SLP at this time. We're, we're not on the front line as much as our RNs and MDs, and we're not saving lives, but we are making lives better. And it's very likely that next week I won't be a speech pathologist, and I will be helping our RNs and MDs and running and getting them supplies or answering phones or carrying food trays. And so... It's hard because my identity in the hospital is a speech pathologist, but knowing next week I'll probably be a healthcare worker, and this is what I signed up for. And I'm proud to be able to do that, though. 
We caught up with Tammy later that year, find out what happens next in her story, and hear her experiences working in New York City during the 2020 spring peak of the virus. Find that and other COVID-related episodes in our archive or at leader.pubs.asher.org. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.